0: Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> the Babadook.
1: Where'd you get this? On the shelf.
2: If it's in a word or it's in a look, you can't get rid of the Babadook. A rumbling sound, then three sharp knocks. ba ba duk duk That's when you'll know he's around. You'll see him if you look. Nothing bad's gonna happen, Sam. Did he think
3: that about my dad before he died? He sees
2: things as they are, that one. I promise to protect you if you promise to protect me. Oh my God. Did he hurt anyone?
3: The boy has significant behavioral problems.
2: This monster thing has got to stop, alright? It's just a book. It can't hurt you to report someone stalking me and my child
3: you can't get rid of the pepper dog you can bring me the boy you can bring me the boy
0: This episode was scheduled for around Halloween. However, a week or so ago, Cinema Sins turned their poisonous, infectious, debilitating brand of missing the whole point of a movie on The Babadook. So we decided to release our show on it this week. As I said on an earlier episode, Cinema Sins are not only not satire and not just a bit of fun, but have had a measurable, demonstrable negative effect on at least one generation's ability to read films watch sustaining stupidity why cinema sins is terrible on youtube for far more depth than i want to go into right now but suffice to say they missed everything important about the babadook in their 11 wretched minutes or less and their viewers will have walked away under the impression that this film is stupid and they will have told anyone who mentioned this film that the babadook is stupid and it's not. At all. So please do share this episode around as a means of spreading the word. A few decades ago, before just anyone could say anything online and have it be taken as fact, CinemaSins might have had a place poking fun at poe faced critical darlings. You know, huge movies. Even then, they would have had to step up their game and actually watch the whole film before they began their moment-to-moment heckling session. And right now, they can have a serious impact on the way smaller movies are perceived by younger movie enthusiasts in particular. So help us oppose this willful ignorance of subtext, get our deeper explorations listened to, and assist The School of Movies in teaching kids how to read film. we've been promising this one for years now and we are finally going to tackle one of the most effective horror stories that has ever had us lying awake at night unable to scrub it from our minds now we've recommended this one enough times that you guys should have seen it already but if for some reason you haven't for the love of god see it now before you continue with this show don't let anybody spoil it for you beforehand and avoid hearing other people's interpretations just see it that's your homework. It's probably on Netflix or uh, Amazon Prime, and uh, it's, it's inexpensive on DVD if you want to just track it down that way. And come back to school when you're ready. With us tonight is Holly Wu insider Maya Lisa, who appeared on our Bojack Horseman shows. Hello. Hello. Uh, she's kind of responsible for this one because she had a dream, apparently, about us being... <laughs> On this very podcast with us, and when she tweeted about it, Sharon was composing a lengthy blog post about female protagonists in horror films, so it just seemed like the time was right to let this grinning black demon back into our lives. So, thank you for that, Maya.
3: Of course, and that story is 100% true, much to my surprise. Could
0: you tell us what we said, because that would make it so much easier. Just. <laughs>
3: If I could remember any details, trust me, you guys would be the first to know. But all I remember was very specifically, we're recording a show. I'm sitting on my bed with my headphones on, looking at my phone exactly as I am right now. Huh. And we were talking about the Babadook.
0: Was it a and scary I dream? Or?
3: No, it was just very... Every day it was very like, no, this it's it's just what we're
1: doing right now. Maybe it's just a a weird forward flash in the matrix.
2: But
0: it's a self-fulfilling prophecy.
1: (laughs) It is a self-fulfilling
0: prophecy. Folks, if you've had dreams about being on our shows doing films we haven't yet covered, tell us because that'll make our lineup so much easier to plan. Um, and take notes as soon as you wake up because yeah, that'll yeah. make things easier to- Again. <laughs> absolutely. If, if you could somehow record your dreams, just send me the file.
3: <laughs> oh, man.
0: Ah, I, I wish. I'm set up for oh life my gosh. now. gosh. <laughs> okay, so from this point on, we are going to assume that you guys at home have all seen it and are going, we're going to go moment to moment illuminating the detail that is packed into every frame of this film by Australian writer director Jennifer Kent. Now there are two ways to read the Babadook and a number of more subtle interpretations connected specifically to the second one. So the first interpretation, the supernatural. A widow named Amelia is struggling to raise her six-year-old son, Sam. They are hounded in their own home by a shadowy black ghost who possesses Amelia, causing her to lash out at Sam, endangering his life. In the end, she vomits the ghost out and banishes it to their basement. Happy ending. (laughs) Number two. Digging a lot deeper. This is a film about severe depression and unconfronted psychosis. Amelia has allowed the tragedy of her husband's death to set the tone for her life, as well as Sam's. Over time, we see the rot that has set into their home in danger, everyone connected to them. As Amelia's condition reaches fever pitch on the final night, she draws close to murdering her son. But he is resourceful and traps her. He refuses to give up on her and in response she is able to disengage and externalize her condition, standing between it and her son protectively. The Babadook retreats to the basement where she is later seen to be nurturing the miserable creature, the implication being the darkness inside us will never go away. You can't get rid of the Babadook. But we can live with it, and we can live above it, so as to prevent harming those we love. What is required is the confrontation and acceptance, and unfortunately that can be overwhelmingly terrifying. also have to get to one other aspect before we dig into the film and it's not one we're going to be getting into all that much but unexpectedly due to social media and the awesome power of memes the babadook became an lgbt icon overnight there are indeed parallels with the destructive power of repression in the babadook as also lightly explored in fantastic Beasts and Where to find them However, there have also been some wild interpretations that key the monster directly in with joyfully, bravely embracing one's lifestyle. That's absolutely fine. Jennifer Kent has declined to comment and we are going to leave those interpretations to the people for whom they mean the most to. The remit of this particular show, however, is to focus on the parallels between this oppressive haunting with grief and depression and the erosion of communication and connection with loved ones. So it's going to be a heavy show, folks. And uh, if you've already heard our Hellblade show, we we talked in that about psychoses, and we're going to kind of refer you back to stuff in that, but try not to go over the same material again if we can, because uh, we don't just want to repeat ourselves. But it's a not dissimilar story. Okay, so... And it also, when you see it the second time, it is a really different story. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, do you, do you guys, like, you, you want to go from, from now, like... Uh, um, I, I saw this the first time uh, on Netflix alone at night and it shat me up and um, I, I got I got Sharon aside the next day and said, OK, I'm going to show you a film. It's a horror film. It's heavy and it's scary and I'm not going to tell you anything about it. Just just watch it. And you watched it. Then. It was
1: wasn't it this one that you I think the way you sold it to me was you have to watch this. I don't want to be the only person in the house who's seen it. Hmm. <laughs>
0: that sounds really cushy, but at the same time, I knew it would be right up your alley. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. So, so what is it like, uh, both of you, watching this film a second time when you kind of when you get it?
3: Oh, wow, it's it's almost a completely different experience. Like you know, when you know what's coming and you know how it's going to end, you start to connect a lot of the dots hmm. early on. I noticed, like, I thought about some of the, the, you know, the second interpretation that you were talking about before. Like, that was something I thought about after the first viewing, but I really noticed in the second and was pretty much thinking about the the underlying depression, the underlying, uh, you know, dealing of loss and grief and uh, and going through that grieving process much more um, when I watched it this, this second
1: time. Hmm. I think for me, the... The impact of seeing it for the second time, it was quite a subtle one to begin with because the, the first time, obviously, you can tell that there's a lot of difficult emotions going on in the house that aren't being dealt with. Mm-hmm. But the vast majority of Amelia's direct stress is being caused or at least to all intent and purposes, is being caused by the monster. The the things that she's reacting to are intensified because of its presence and because of how it's manifesting and um, upsetting Sam. And a lot of her behaviour seems to be in direct response to Sam. When you see it the second time, she's having all this stress and... Uh, difficulty connecting with her son and nigh-on impossibility connecting with anyone else and then the monster and it's a subtle difference but it's it's kind of a it lines up the chicken and egg a little bit better Mm -hmm. Um, and it becomes much more clear how much of it is there from jump street
0: yeah There's a a castling allegiance in this film in that you start out from Amelia's point of view and Sam starts out as, uh, at the very least, annoying, quite frightening... I, I had somebody say to, to me, Oh, I couldn't get I I couldn't get a head nor tail out of the Babadook. The kid just annoyed me. I wanted to strangle him. I thought, Well that's the Isn't point. that the
3: whole point? <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> you you go through the, the the beginning of the film going, Oh god, this kid's a nightmare and then at some point, which we will get to, they switch places. Yeah. It's a slow gradual run, one rather than a, a, a sudden flip around. And your allegiances suddenly become to Sam as you realize how dangerous Amelia's getting and you also start to piece together how much of what he was doing was defensive and you start to work out that there were things you weren't seeing from when presumably she blacked out and things he's saying suggest he's heard them somewhere and they're not from other kids And she's shocked by them, so she can't remember saying them Mm. so that they rub off on him. So it's little things like, you know, know, I'll I'll get the monster, I'll smash his face in, and he's a six-year-old boy, and, like, automatically from Jump Street, you're like, that's a really violent reaction for a little kid. And then you start to piece things together, and you realise quite how much of a, a terrible influence she's been on him to make him this disturbed... But, at the same time, how much he's been able to hold on to a certain innate strength and purity of just being this six year old kid who loves his mother and wants her to get better
3: and he's desperate to talk about it as well, like mm. she is not really giving him the the space and the ability to discuss his father like one of the things that i I wrote down this time and that really stood out to me was when he says he's he's my father you don't own him mm. and like you know, he's got a very valid point there. She's not really giving him uh, that uh, that room to kind of discuss him. He obviously wants to know mm-hmm. about his father, and she's so insistent on uh, you know not thinking about him and not talking about him and insisting that she's moved on, and she doesn't realize how that's had an effect on Sam. And that this is what he really needs. He, I mean, they both really need to talk about it, but him especially because he never got to know him. It's pretty well implied that he feels a little bit of guilt for the fact that he's there and his father's not.
0: Mm. As much as a six-year-old can comprehend, but this is like mm-hmm. he's reaching an age where he's starting to. He's starting to get more. it. Yeah, he's starting to get it. He's starting to understand more about the world. They were thinking about casting a slightly older young actor, but um, they noticed that. Uh, but kids of eight and nine have kind of more of a worldliness about them, and they needed someone who was just on the cusp but still held on to that uh childish mm. um, just being straightforward,
1: yeah, yeah, well, eight and nine is the age that children start to form their sense of identity, they really start to um develop strong ideas about who they are and who they're going to be for the rest of their lives um, and that. Everything that's come before that obviously informs upon them, but everything that happens around that time is really, really crucial to it. One of the things that uh, that occurred to me is that it's been seven years, Sam is turning seven, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and...
0: So to the day by the end of the film. By the end the, of the film, the, the, yeah, the, exactly. The night, like the, uh, I, it, the week after the terrible events of the the final night Mm. are uh, are the precise seven-year anniversary.
1: And I I think, I don't know how intentional this was, but the broken glass of the windscreen in the car crash at the beginning suddenly made me think of a mirror and this idea of your seven years bad luck when you break a mirror. Now, one thing that features in fairy tales quite a bit is magical things happening not necessarily because somebody's done something or because uh, an act has been initiated or something like that but just because it's time that a, an enchantment has been cast for a specific period of time and once that time has elapsed you might still need to do something to to properly conclude it but it's going to break because it's time for it to happen mm. Like the prince turning up to wake up Sleeping Beauty after a hundred years.
0: Yeah, one presumes there was a driving mirror on the in the yeah. car as so well. There's so there's probably
1: an actual mirror that's broken. Yeah, yeah.
0: but uh, we're, oh we're... man,
3: you know what I just realized is that the broken glass ends up in a bowl of her soup. At one point, she has oh. to eat it. Oh, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. Jeez. Okay, <laughs> so And we don't even know if that glass is real. It's not in mm-hmm. Sam's food.
0: Mm-hmm. Nope. The um oh a good point yeah she finds it in her uh-huh. food and nobody
1: it, touches it, it and sometimes. it's not in his mm-hmm.
0: yeah and mm. she says don't eat it and um, and
1: then because it's only in hers she thinks he's put it in there
0: yeah yeah and then we as exactly an audience, because we've seen her bec- becoming increasingly unhinged begin to think she's putting it in there whether yeah. it's
1: but it might not even be real yeah.
0: but mm-hmm. the we the first time we meet her is within her dream reliving this traumatic event It sets out the recurring point that she's not getting enough sleep or any sleep. And that's when you are really vulnerable to uh, to a decaying mental state that your ability to cope with just day to day stuff which needs to, when you're, you know, when you're living a, a difficult life as, as they are, that needs to be kept in fighting fit order mm. just to do the day-to-day shit.
1: Absolutely. Just, just the simple process of being a single parent requires every screed of energy you've got mm. because there is nobody else to pass it off to. Yeah, You don't get to tag team.
0: And uh, so she has this in a constantly sleepless night uh, and they emphasize how disturbing this kid is. And, like, you know, you imagine trying to get a wink of sleep around someone who keeps coming into your room complaining about monsters. And, like, that's a natural thing for kids of a certain age to to, to test, can I disturb mum and dad by saying there was a monster? And, you know, that they they may see monsters and, and, and come in and keep testing that. But eventually you do have to say, right, that will do for this. Mm.
1: But if it, it starts off as genuine fear. And if you can mm. consistently reassure every time, it's okay, there's nothing there. You know, back to bed, it's all okay. Every morning that they wake up and the monster didn't get them, that's confirmation that mum and dad are right, that there is no monster. It's mm. okay. Um, however, Sam lives with a monster. Yeah. And so that however much reassurance she is able to give him, there are going to be days that she's lying when she says there's no monsters. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing about the way he behaves. Again, as you say, the way it's, it's portrayed at the beginning of the movie, we don't really have much explanation for why he is the way he is. He is weird. He is disconcerting. <laughs> he uh, is the, the source of a great deal of outside judgment and she comes to his defense when he's you know being questioned by the school and by her sister and yeah. um you know people look at him and think this is a weird kid doing weird things and he freaks us out and at some point they they don't even like his uh his teachers don't even
3: really address him as a person they just mm-hmm. think he's a he's a problem yeah. that they need to deal with and Absolutely. she's you know very insistent in saying stop calling him the boy mm-hmm. his name is Sam yeah. like he has a name, please treat him like a human being and not just this nuisance, Um, which is a little bit ironic because she sees him as a nuisance every once in a while as well. But but. this (laughs) is is
1: the thing, her responses, a lot of them seem to be in direct reaction to the way she's being judged because this is the thing Hmm. about Amelia and you, you kind of don't come to really grasp this until towards the end of the film. She's, this has been going on for seven years the stuff she's dealing with, the grief, the trauma, the trauma of the birth. I mean, the, the fact that nobody from GP to midwife to whoever it was was there when her son was born at the hospital, to whoever was following up with her after he was born, to any members of social services who've ever been involved with her, preschool teachers, regular school teachers, nobody has ever clicked to the fact that her... a, a birth that doesn't involve a horrendous car crash and massive emotional trauma of witnessing your partner dying in the seat next to you can be the catalyst for uh, postnatal depression, uh, postnatal psychosis, which is something that they, they do tend to be quite wary about because of how dangerous it can be, mm-hmm. um, and it's taken seven years for people to not figure out that some shit's going on. Now, that means she's doing some ninth level covering up.
3: Yeah. And and I think um, her sister, Claire, um, confronts her about that at, at one point, too, when, you know, they're kind of having uh, the non-birthday party and she says, look, you know, you you need to move on and I don't think you're really dealing with this mm. but then Amelia brings up an equally valid point of Claire never asks her how she's doing mm. she never bothers to ask her how she is and she desperately needs to talk
1: I get the impression from the way Claire behaves and the kind of friends that Claire has <laughs> and from Amelia's responses to Um, outside authority that expect her to be a certain way that she grew up in a family where normality was really highly prized Mm. like you Mm -hmm. will be the same as everyone else and if there is anything about you that is a little bit different you will cover that shit up
0: Um,
3: and you're going to be you know kind of on the on the outside you're just going to always be an outsider she's very um, deliberately, when at, in that party scene with um, the with Claire's daughter, she's very deliberately framed away from all of the the kind of perfectly manicured mm. uh, Stepford wives. I kept calling them. <laughs> they have all yeah. of them, all of them in this nice frame, and they they look so perfect. And then it cuts back to Amelia, who's just framed by herself, mm. all alone, mm. looking not quite as well put together. Her hair's a little disheveled, and there's a very very clear distinction between her and the quote-unquote
0: normals Mm. it's shot like a uh an oppressive job interview Mm. she's just sort of sat there on her own and they're all staring at her judging her and thinking this one's (laughs) weird i mean like that the the princess party's weird in itself in that all the women are wearing these dark suits is like a funeral Mm. now i could be wrong about this but it appears she has put on her dead husband's performance jacket the one she keeps in the cellar the clothes that become most associated with the babadook So she's wearing her faded pink outfit, the one she presents to the world, her narrative of I am fine, but because of the enforced princess party dress code, she has to cloak herself in the symbol of her own depression. The other women are wearing their own smart black jackets, which they chose themselves. The other women present an image of absolute stability, contrasting violently with Amelia. Like I said, I could be wrong, but I think I'm right.
1: That makes a lot of sense. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah. There are so many things in this that are set up with that oppressive, judgy air. Mm -hmm. Um, Like you say, like like a job interview, there's the meeting at the school, the party... The, uh, when social services turn up, there's this constant drip, drip, drip yeah. of her being judged and judged and judged again, and deep down feeling like she falls short. There is a great line where um, Claire says, "You have to move on," and she says, "I have moved on. I don't talk about him. That uh, is not <laughs> moving on. No, it's they not, are not at the all. same thing." But she, is, Definitely. she wants to pretend that she's doing exactly what everybody wants her to mm. do.
0: It's performative normality.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, nobody wants me to talk about it. Nobody wants me to discuss it, so I'm not
3: going to. But obviously, like she still has all of her husband's things. She holds on to all of his stuff. She insists that Sam can't touch it and can't look at it. And she thinks about him all the time. Mm.
0: And she keeps it in the basement, which is often symbolic of...
1: These mm-hmm. hiding a
3: secret mm-hmm. and the, the secret. subconscious and everything else
1: absolutely but that this idea that uh, of you have to get over trauma that you have to get over grief um it's it's incredibly insidious for people who are trying to process bereavement because there is a process to it but it's different for everybody and a lot of people have kind of got it into their head that there are these steps to grief and everybody does them and everybody does them in the same order and it just takes (laughs) some people a little bit longer to get through them and you know what? No. Sometimes you do them backwards. Sometimes you skip one. Sometimes you do one of them three times and then come back round again and start from the beginning and sometimes you know what? That grief doesn't go away. This is um, part of what the the conclusion of the film is for me and we'll go into this in more detail when we get there but if she banishes the demon entirely she has to let go of oscar and she doesn't want to Mm. and that is okay
3: Mm -hmm. yeah it's like you either you and you can't ignore them anymore Mm. it's like you can't just pretend it's not there you you fight your demons or you learn how to live with them
1: yeah Sometimes you fight them and you learn how to live with them.
3: Yeah, which is essentially, well, we'll get to that later, but that's kind of essentially what she and Sam end up doing.
1: Indeed.
0: To continue the performative normality, she never gets any real privacy either. There's um, like she gets to watch TV on her own, but it's not edifying at all. It's shit TV, by the way. Everything she watches doesn't affect her in any way. She stares at it with dead eyes. Mm.
1: There's no choice about it. It's the drip feed of what the broadcast is yeah, bringing. in. it's just in
0: whatever's on. And there's the creepiest stuff seems to be playing on her uh, uh, TV. And th- a lot of the um, the old films she watches in the middle when it starts getting delirious are uh, reminiscent of the earliest horror movies, like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Nosferatu are too mm-hmm. mm-hmm. there's also black sabbath or the three faces of fear putting the babadook in them is that was it was a masterstroke there mm-hmm. and uh she starts to unravel but there there is that one scene where she tries to take a little moment for herself and that uh, gets shattered by sam coming oh man in.
3: that scene was great <laughs> yeah uh,
0: it's you know and obviously a, like this is a woman of under astonishing levels of tension and it's like can i have this one thing could i just have this this thing for five seconds and you know sam comes in and, and ruins it now it's not his fault and it's it's the the way things have been set up and her pulling him out of school specifically means that she can't get a break from him at all and he is a difficult child and just being around a difficult child for 20 minutes can be a nightmare. It is an exercise in the theory of relativity and her, every time she overreacts, she blames herself and then overcompensates with how, uh, with her, her responses. So she'll take him to Wally's or like prepare like a, a, a bowl of ice cream. That's so ice cream big for dinner. Mm-hmm. And covered <laughs> yeah, in Yeah.
1: Those E numbers are really going to help.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, but you know, the, the look on her face when she serves in the ice cream—this is much later in the film—but it's in this kind of yes, you know, we can reset it. We're going back to zero again, you know, so so that you know all of this that the horrible stuff that's happened has kind of kind of been wiped away, and we could just keep moving, and, and maybe things will get better. But this is not something that you can ice cream over.
1: No, he he needs to be allowed to talk about what's just happened. If she scares him, he needs to be able mm. to talk about that.
0: And yep. she needs to be able to get a break from him properly. So when she does get that afternoon off of work and goes to the uh, uh, mall, her idea of what to do when she's a bit on her own is to eat cheap ice cream again. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Well, this is the thing. On she a sofa. She doesn't know who she is. She doesn't know who she is, what she wants, how to get it, the, the vague opportunity at uh, relief and satisfaction that she is afforded. And she goes for observing the commercial mm. and satisfying a, a superficial sweet tooth. It is exactly what she does at home in front of the TV eating chocolate. It's the same exact thing except that she's in a shopping center. Mm.
0: And there's a covetousness about it as well. She, uh, you, know, you, you wander around a shopping center looking at things you can't afford and she can't afford anything. She's mm. piss poor. I know exactly what that's like. And then when she's in the parking lot, she sees a young couple clearly very much in love, canoodling in a car and finds herself staring at them in this kind of envious, envious fashion, remembering Mm. what she used to have and has now resigned herself to not having. Even when um, Robbie does seem to be showing some interest in her and she's punishing herself uh, for everything that she, she's gone through and, and decided this is not something she's going to seek, but she will watch it with hungry eyes.
1: Mm, yeah, This is, again, though, I think there's another element of judgment in that because it she's being bombarded with these images of what she feels like society thinks she should have, what she should be doing, what she should be chasing after. Um, and what Robbie offers her, question mark, is not necessarily um, an opportunity at a romantic relationship. Right now, that is the last thing she needs Mm. to land herself with another person that she has to, to in some way, take responsibility for and take care of Mm. um, when she can't even take care of herself at this stage. Um, But the prospect of somebody who actually thinks she's worth giving a day off to, that she's worth... um, uh speaking too kindly that's what she's yeah i was missing. i was gonna
3: say the the kindness is is really what he represents you know mm. he's he's that understanding He's like hey i know what it's like when you know when a kid's sick he, like he he brings a, a present for sam at one point and mm. he's like oh i'm not really sick it's like oh ouch but he still tried mm. so you yeah. can, can give him points for
1: that and I love the way that whole interaction between them was framed as well, because the the sense of slight eeriness about the film means that to me, and it may not be the case for, for you two. But for me, there was always this slight undercurrent of if she doesn't react the right way to Robbie, hmm. he will turn on her. Hmm. However, yeah, I
3: can make that sense, too. Yeah, like he's just going to reject her outright exactly. if, if he doesn't
1: get what what it is that he seems to want but he mm-hmm. never does he never reacts that way and again she's she's coming into this with a mindset of i will always be judged i will always people will always expect me to behave in a certain way and if i can't meet that i will mm-hmm. be punished which is a shame
3: because uh, robbie really only re- he he reacts in a in a hurtful way because he's like oh my god you lied to me mm. and that's really the thing that that sets him off is like well now my yeah now his his feelings are understandably hurt because she lied um, and just for a second going back to some of the things that uh, some of the things that Amelia mm-hmm. isn't really allowed to pursue as far as like a normal thing. She, uh, one of the Stepford wives at one point in the in the party scene also mentions that she used to write and that, um, this is a very throwaway line, but Amelia says that she at one point was writing like children's stuff. Mm. So the, the film implies that she had some kind of ambition to be a writer or, um, or to write children's books, um, at, at least at some point, and now she's not really able to pursue it. Does that then lead her to writing the Babadook?
0: That's how I interpreted it. Absolutely. The, mm-hmm. the, now we're in Fight Club territory. That uh, especially when she—it's uh, <laughs> not—that um, wasn't intended <laughs> to be a joke, but we are. Uh, I'm sorry, no, that <laughs> in, in terms of um, remember when she gets the sedatives, and uh, well, no, uh, Sam gets the sedatives, and she starts getting into a pattern of forcing him to take the pills, even when he asks mm-hmm. her repeatedly not to make him take them and she's like no no, no you gotta do it yep. love and that, that, that's that was, when that's about the mm-hmm. time you start to think things are off here you know, yeah that's
3: when that's when the tide starts to turn yeah. and you start uh feeling sorry for sam yeah.
0: and and start feeling worried about him as well rather than mm-hmm. worried for her um but now they've already found the babadook book which uh you know she just happened to find and we can assume she made one night and it's beautifully presented by the way she has a real gift
3: gorgeous um absolutely gorgeous the design of this book like we could probably spend another hour on a a different podcast talking mm. just about the design but it's (laughs) absolutely beautiful
0: and, you know, the, but when she gets that, uh, what she feels like is a proper night's sleep, it would appear, because events transpire, that the book comes back. She, in fact, went out to the trash can, got all the bits back together, and then recreated the book in an even worse, bloodier, more horrible fashion, predicting and yeah. effectively just laying down in her mind what her plan was. Mm. Um, and a it little bit of, her, yeah, her conscious, A
3: little bit of what she, yeah, kind of channeling a little bit of, of these things that maybe somewhere deep down she kind of wishes she could do, but yeah. she can't really. So she's sort of putting it into the book. And it's um, one of the other things I love about the introduction of the book is that just in terms of like the the color palette of the of the movie it's very dark it's pretty neutral there's a lot of grays there's a lot of like dusty pinks Mm -hmm. and beige and white and black um when you see the baba duke the actual book for the first time it's the only it's it's one of the only times you actually see the color red and it's the first time you see the color red yeah it completely breaks this like neutral color palette Mm -hmm. that they have going on and then in, like, one of the next scenes, Sam is wearing a red sweater. I was like, oh, nice. Mm. Sort of they're kind of tying things together with colour, too. I really like that. Mm.
1: There's a handful of muted burgundies as well, um, one rings. of which is the Scrabble set that um, mm. uh, Robbie brings round for Sam. And you see it on his uh, bookshelf later on.
0: Mm-hmm. And the fact that she always... Amelia always wears this sort of pink cardigan-looking thing. And, yeah. And, uh, like, this is color that's been crushed out of her it, it suggests that because the babadook book is is the book red
1: the book is yeah. is red it's not yeah. scarlet but it is it it's is a red. much more vibrant red than that suggests that is. her color mm-hmm. when she
0: was in top form when uh oscar was still alive was this passionate red and she had that and it's been crushed it's out been of her.
3: drained out mm-hmm. drained it's and she's faded.
0: wearing this limp faded cardigan to remind her in in pink of this red mm. and she swathes the babadook book in that
1: yeah her work uniform is also a, a faded pastel pink <laughs> and the uh the burgundy colors are that red with black added mm. with the 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 darkness of the depression and everything that she is now carrying
0: and the the, the most horrendous twisted um like little pop-out function of the recreated Babadook book uh, is when the little cardboard version of her cuts her own throat and the red pours out Mm -hmm. that's kind of you know it's it's an incredibly dark twisted thought but it's suggesting hey you do this you certainly get passion back in your life yeah
1: this is how you get your color back out there
0: you get to be alive for a brief moment Mm. yeah it's horrendous but it is
1: extremely disturbing this is a
0: beast inside her fighting to get out
1: absolutely and the the idea that the she's writing the book or at least that there is a part of her that is writing the book you, Your are subconscious according to um I, I'm, I can't remember whether it was freud who said it first or young but the idea of how your subconscious communicates to you with dreams is that it will basically tell you two things um, that you will remember vividly what you are afraid of and what you want and very frequently what you are afraid you want Mm
3: -hmm.
1: and that's what your subconscious will confront you with over and over and over again and I mean I've noticed when I when I dream when my brain is trying to tell me something Um, it it does it in sets of three and I'll have a relatively calm version of sort of the same dream two nights in a row and if I don't work out what it means or or start doing something about it I'll get a really aggressive will you listen to me woman version Mm -hmm. of it the third night Mm -hmm. and then it's like okay right not really able to argue with that one so in a way the like the first version of the book seemed like kind of the if you pay attention now it might be okay you know listen to this message and do something about it before things get too bad and the second version of the book is a more intense version of that and then obviously once she burns it it's like okay the book is clearly not going to work you are now going to have the actual babadook invading your house Mm -hmm. yep and it's told you from the beginning that you can't get rid of it yep
0: there's a couple more Fight Club tip offs, actually. Uh, the, um, when it transitions from nighttime to morning, and it just goes like that, that. That evokes what uh, Jack says regarding insomnia.
2: When you have insomnia, you're never really asleep, and you're never really awake.
0: The, the, the sense that just time has become fluid at night for her, in, in that it, it either goes on forever or is gone immediately and instantly. But she, what she's not getting is rest. There's also a lot of jump cuts. Which hint at the idea that she's actually having blackouts or, or you know, Certainly not knowing who she is. Certainly yeah, that she's losing
1: course, time. she's losing time, exactly. At least, she's dissociating like a motherfucker at yeah. this point.
0: <laughs> Couldn't have put it better myself. Um, but the rotting, decaying tooth that she has that's tipped off repeatedly in the early stages of the film. She keeps sort of rubbing the side of her mouth and the cockroaches behind the fridge, they're both signs that she's not tending to what's inside. And her brain and her body are trying desperately to tell her... With the tooth, it's like she's sitting on the couch all evening just shoving chocolate joylessly into her mouth. And eventually, if you eat enough sweet things, your tooth's going to decay. But she's also not going to the dentist to get it sorted out. And it just keeps hurting her and hurting her. And eventually, she rips it out of her own head because she's already Mm. over the edge. It's too late by that point. And with the cockroaches behind the fridge, it's like the, the infestation is there. And there's a constant... Reference uh, with, the, with the Babadooks movement that it's like a cockroach, it's like something that's scuttled in there. You can kill cockroaches, but they just keep coming back and they keep, you know, laying eggs and they keep surviving. And it's really, really difficult to get rid of cockroaches. And you can tell yourself, I there is nothing wrong with me, which is an attempt to bash this cockroach inside on the head, but it's still going to be there unless you actually take that first step of actually accepting and confronting it.
1: Her neighbour is called Mrs Roach.
0: Mrs Roach, correct. I
1: and love Mrs Roach. Mrs. She's, <laughs> she's, a, woman, she? she's the only one that gets
3: it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> she's she's very concerned and she's uh, she's very genuine and the, the fact that there's a tip-off when Sam says, she's got Parkinson's and it's like, that's not performative normality, Sam, we don't do that. Mm. But she's like, oh, it's okay. And that, Immediately suggests an acceptance on both her part and Sam's yeah. of sometimes yeah. we are messed up and you can live with that.
1: And covering up reality doesn't help anybody. Yeah. Do you know who yeah. she who she makes me think of actually? Like a a really kindly Baba Yaga. If you have an old mm. lady neighbour and you've got this stuff going down, <laughs> listen to her.
3: Exactly, yeah. Uh, at one point, she's uh, she's talking to Sam, and he, he says, oh, she thinks that I, I'm i like Dad. Mm-hmm. And Amelia tries to shove that down a little bit, like, oh, you know, we said we wouldn't talk about this, and, and Mrs. Roach says, no, it's, it's okay. He wanted to know, and we talked about it. Mm-hmm. Like, that's exactly what they have both needed for so long. Mm-hmm. She's the only one that gets it. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, and that is, of course, why when Sam is pushed to the wall and desperately needs to reach out to somebody she's who he reaches out to
0: Hmm. yeah of course and um somewhere um, not too far down amelia is beginning to wonder uh, whether her condition is going to spread to other people so that when she starts seeing the babadook in mrs roach's house she's just thinking this is why i'm not letting you get too close my monster will kill you this is going to be too much for you. You are frail and old and totally vulnerable and you can't handle this. And it's a threat from herself to herself. And yet when she goes to the police station, the, uh, the, the moral authorities, the strong men to actually get some, some help, the people you're supposed to go to when you're helpless, she's left without any help at all. They just stare at her incredulously and think she's a crazy woman, (laughs) which honestly, they're, they're not wrong. Um,
1: that that appearance of the Babadook in um, in Gracie's house and in the police station that felt to me like what mental illness and particularly depression, but other forms of mental illness as well, can do, mm. which is to say to you, these people can't help you.
0: Yeah.
1: Don't waste your time with them. Don't, Don't put them, them in it, danger. Yeah. Don't burden them with it. This is yeah. yours.
0: And they do respond in kind to corroborate that, theory, that internal theory, which is to just look at her incredulously. And, like I said, they, they, they believe she's crazy. She is. But they don't react in a kind of, do you need some. Do, you, see, need s- do you need help? to see yeah. someone? We can, mm-hmm. we can set up some channels if you, if you need to talk to somebody. Yeah. 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 In no, a way that authorities p- should be there to help us with that. Absolutely.
3: And at this point, she's been on a pretty big lack of sleep at this point so you could also interpret it as she is just straight up hallucinating because she hasn't slept
1: yeah and when you get social services turning up and getting involved the the first wave of support that she's had in nearly seven years and it's not a what do you need you are obviously not coping What do you need to help you cope? It's a okay. We're we're just looking for enough boxes to tick to take him away at this point.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: And one of the one of the symbols of greatest um, victory to me was when um, they come back at the very end Mm -hmm. and they're like they're doing all this false false jolliness and it was oh yeah it's time to get back to school and she just looks at them and says something along the lines of well we both needed some time she has the confidence now to be able to say to them no this is the way it is Mm.
0: she doesn't have to do the performative normality anymore and yet she's totally chill about it Mm. in a way that they couldn't really argue with
1: yeah and it scares them a little bit
0: yeah they're like oh okay so she's she's got it in hand what what are our jobs all about (laughs) (laughs)
1: Mm.
3: well we're pretty redundant aren't we hi (laughs)
0: Jennifer Kent uh, mentioned uh, in the uh, the making of materials that she doesn't particularly like, uh, I think, uh, is it schools or institutions? She's not a fan of, because that definitely comes through. Mm. The, the, uh, she's encountered merciless uh, and uh, empathy-free bureaucracy mm. in the past. Her job's like that, too. As anybody poor will have done.
1: I, I would say she lives in Australia, of course she has, but yeah. frankly, that appears... Oh, that's in- everywhere. Most yeah, it
3: is everywhere. West. Everywhere and, it's civilized.
0: Yeah.
3: And Amelia's job is is the same way. It's an institution for the elderly, mm. where they're mostly forgotten about. And even when she tries to crack jokes with them when she's doing the little bingo game, she gets in trouble for it.
1: Absolutely. That's another thing as well. She is surrounded by the prospect of oncoming death. Yeah. Oh yeah. Day.
0: She's wallowing in the, in the. Um, I, I've often thought, like, I could not do what people who work in care homes do. I would I, – it would just be too sharp for me to uh, – I, I would feel too much. And I wouldn't be able to hide it from all of the – I was going to call them inmates. All of the – Residents. The, um, the <laughs> residents. <the laughs> uh, whenever I visited my, uh, uh, my grandmother in, in her care home and then eventually her hospice, I just felt beyond terrible. And – you know, I, I, I have respect for people who work in nursing homes and uh, and can actually stick that one out. I, when, when I went to um, uh, college, uh, there was a, a lot of people who were working, uh, you know, towards working in care there, and they were, to a to a, a woman, because almost all of them were women. Um, exceptionally emp- empathetic and um, compassionate people. So I'm hoping that you know we get generations who are able to help people yeah. in a time of, of, of great fear because ultimately when you're when you're starting to have the bits of your life drip away from you and you've only got this place left to live in and your mind is going that's that to me is one of the most terrifying things to imagine to be, mm-hmm. especially if my family have died. That's nightmare-inducing. Yeah,
3: it's a, it's a really hard job, and Amelia is so hmm. obviously not equipped at this point to, to be there and to deal with it. Yeah. It's just a constant reminder of mortality.
0: But uh, when she uh, drives back from um, Wally's, that the, uh, her tooth's still bothering her, and then the, the Babadook occupies the car, and Sam starts screaming because obviously we've missed a moment where she's roared at him. Uh, that there's a it's a sense of derangement, and then there's the crash. But Sharon, you notice something that she does immediately afterwards when they get home. They survive the crash, and then
1: yeah, well, the the in the lead up to this as well. Um, this I believe is the first. Scene where she yells at Sam and actually remains conscious and present.
0: Yeah, where she's aware of that she's doing it. Yeah, Yeah.
1: not nowhere near the extent. Um, but to a degree she is at least aware that it's happening yeah. um, and the fact that that she sort of has this instinct to get them outside and get them some fresh air and some food those are good instincts although I'm not entirely certain that the environment they end up in is really the ideal one <laughs> um, but she's she's trying these are, are sort of indications that there is a part of her that is trying to heal that's trying to get herself back to better but after the car crash, basically, what the way this seems to come across to me is that the this little minor shunt that they have obviously triggers her memories of the car crash of the night that Sam was born. Mm. They go home, and she goes into this sort of zoned-out state, and she gets into the bath fully clothed. And she sits there, and she sort of seems to be having this sort of internal trippy music going on and she's really sort of trying to maintain this kind of sedated sense of calm and she's recreating the birth. She sits there in warm water. She pulls Sam into the water with her so he is Mm -hmm. not there to start with and then he is introduced to the scenario. She is trying to replay that night and give it a different ending. That is essentially what your brain is doing When you are experiencing PTSD, it's running through traumatic events that nearly killed you and trying to piece together a different outcome, a different ending, a a way of processing it and integrating it into your memory in a way that is no longer threatening to you, but allows you to learn from it and make sure it doesn't happen next time. Because your brain doesn't know that these accidents and incredibly traumatic events are not anything that you can do anything about. As far as it's concerned, it has to remember all this stuff so that you can learn from it and avoid it next time.
0: immediately after this is when she gets off the deep end uh Uh, This is where the true resentment for Sam starts coming out and she starts becoming Mm. this oppressive monster. She cuts off his lifeline, which is the phone, the only link he had to somebody. They've already been blocked off from her sister, which was uh, family. Then she cuts the lifeline to the neighbour, so that's friends out the window, Mm. and they are on an island in that house. Yeah.
1: Well, ultimately, there's the point immediately after the bath where she curls up with Oscar's violin. Mm. This alternative outcome that she's trying to create at this point is Oscar lived Sam didn't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she even
3: says that it, oh man there's this awful like heartbreaking scene where she just goes off on Sam as like you don't know how many times I wish it had been you that died and not him. It's like mm. oh man. I mean you get a sense that like she's she's starting to express some of the things that she kind of like I'm sure a lot of parents have had weird thoughts about their kids before and like oh my god can't, like why can't you just shut up why can't you just be normal like she says to him you know there's a lot of of things that you you know it's like I, I can't say this to my kid or I can't say this to a child or I would never say this to a child but she just goes for it and it's so sad mm-hmm. and Sam is just so like you can tell he he knows he like he understands that it's you know he was the outcome of all of this like he's starting to put that together now and you know he tries to touch the violin she shoves his hand away she won't let him have anything to you know she punishes him for going into the basement and looking at his things because he's curious he wants to know um at the same time he's he is a good kid you know he's not he's not one of these precocious kids that you know is just a a nuisance he's perceptive, he's very clever, he's creative, and he just wants to protect his mom. That's all he really wants. Like, man, just let this kid fight for his mom.
0: And she starts off fantasizing that uh, after the the book where she's shown herself how she's going to murder him, she fantasizes Mm -hmm. that he's been butchered, which takes her having to do it out of the equation, and she reacts with horror at this, as is natural, but it's a picture she's put in her own brain of what if he was dead? How would you react? It would be terrible, but you would then feel a sense of relief. And then it escalates into her creating a a particularly detailed news anchor illusion of her having killed Sam and then been shot by the police so that she doesn't have to kill herself. So, again, it's taking away the steps of the extremity of this. And it's like, well, what if you killed Sam, but then you couldn't live with yourself, and then the police killed you? This is psychosis manifesting. This is genuinely yeah. well, violent, having, dangerous thoughts. Yeah,
1: she's having hallucinations, visual, and um, there's, there's a quality to the music mm. that plays as well, where it... it you start with something that sounds like it's non-diegetic and it's in the soundtrack and then it cuts off very abruptly, which makes it sound like it's in her head. Um, So she's, she's got all of these things that her mind is creating to, uh, to again, it's alarm bells. It's, it's screaming at her, look, this is what's going to happen. You, you need to deal with this. But this idea that she has never been able to look at honestly, this, resentment that she feels that oscar died and sam lived Mm. how much better would it have been if she'd just been able to at some point say that to somebody in in the quiet and privacy and away from sam where it couldn't hurt him and just have that person just give her a hug and let her cry it out
0: to be able to confront and accept that about herself this is the thing with the psychosis you can live with that you can live with these horrible dark feelings and thoughts but you must have an outlet you must have support mm-hmm. you must have a process to go through to be able to keep them that in control Yeah, like, it means you're broken but in a way that you can live with as opposed to broken and there's no living with that and suicide and murder is the only answer. Well
1: when it's especially when it's a manifestation of, of anxiety which is a normal human reaction to stressful situations but it gets taken to extremes and in this case it's taken to extremes and extremes and extremes again. Uh, but ultimately this again with the the judgment that she feels from everybody around her what breaks her is this idea that What a terrible person am I that I had this thought that I wished my son didn't exist because that would mean I would have his father back. What a terrible, terrible person. I don't deserve to live because Mm -hmm. I had that thought. You know what? It's a thought. Thoughts don't hurt people. If you're not acting on them, they are okay. And this is something I've had to tell myself, and I've said before about dealing with... um, Uh, not to the extent of OCD, but obsessive compulsive thoughts where I've had some horrible shit wandering through my brain. And it took me a long time to grasp the idea that they are thoughts. That's all. I'm not Mm -hmm. doing anything about them.
3: And if you don't confront those thoughts, and if you don't at least have some kind of outlet, like you said, then it will go that step too far, which is we see Amelia actually start to
1: strangle Sam in this case yeah and and the mm-hmm. the, the um you get the dog as a warning as well, oh yeah, mm. the dog, and that actually after she uh
3: she has this uh well that's in the book too, it's kind of this premonition that she's going to kill the dog, mm-hmm. she does that, and that's when she rips the finally rips a tooth out of her mouth too,
1: yeah.
0: Because in a way, she's kind of dealing with the rot and uh, yep. pulling and it all decaying. to the surface. Yep. Yeah.
3: She's decaying, and this is another um, this is another byproduct of of her mental state. Mm.
1: She's giving in to those, those primal mm-hmm.
0: instincts. This all starts down in the subconscious in the basement. She's effectively made a shrine to Oscar, her husband. His uh, clothes are hanging up in there. The Babadook's clothes are most definitely based on his... And she equates this darkness with Oscar. He says, you can bring me the about, boy. I,
1: I can, I can come <laughs> back, or yeah. I don't have to go away. We can be together. You, we, we can, can be together, but you need to bring me the boy."
0: Yeah, you know, the, 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 her, her son's been violating this, um, the, the, this sacred place. It, it's almost like it doesn't really matter where he's buried. He's buried down there for Amelia, and uh, her going down there to, um, to sort of to. to be swallowed up by the darkness is, is about the last thing that happens before she goes on the, uh, the war path. And, uh, she has a terrible relationship with death as a result of this accident. She, uh, she can't think about it. She can't talk about it. And the n- never celebrating Sam's birthday and using her sister's child as a sort of an excuse to offset it by a week allows her to avoid the idea of this death day and you know, just the, the, the acceptance that, that her husband died in a horrible way. It's the actually seeing him killed, which is uh, the vision she gets in the bedroom at the very end when his head is sliced into in this way that would traumatize any human being. But she's been carrying around with a sense of guilt that she caused this and she witnessed this alone and she's not shared it with anyone. Mm.
1: Also, the fact that it's combined with the fact that she was going through labor at the time, which in and of Mm -hmm. itself can be intense enough to cause PTSD in in mothers. Yeah, that can be traumatic enough. And now she's
3: got to carry on with raising Sam all by herself. Just like the anxiety is just compounding on itself. Um, And uh, with Sam, it's almost like it's almost like she's trying to bury herself in the work of dealing with Sam. Like that's the one thing she focuses on instead of focusing on her grieving process. It's like, if she just takes on all the work and has that, then she doesn't have to deal with anything else, which I think a lot of people do when, when they're going through something that's difficult or depressing. It's like, well, if I just stay busy, if I just keep working and then I won't have to think about it because I'll be so busy that it'll, it'll just be out of my mind.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's a distraction. And I wonder if exactly. that, that was the case when he was little, because obviously a baby is so demanding that it is very easy to put your own concerns aside. And that, again, is what people would have expected her to do, is put all of her own needs aside and focus entirely on Sam.
0: That's the performative normality again.
1: But the thing is, when he's tiny and he can't talk to her or really expect anything of her in terms of interaction he's only just he's he's hitting the age where he needs to start talking about this stuff where he needs to be talking about the emotional impact of things that are going on and she is entirely ill-equipped to do that for him Mm. the the part of I, i am pretty sure that part of the reason that he behaves the way he does is because he's not had that sense of emotional connection with her that a child desperately needs in order to be able to, to form and develop mm-hmm. that part of themselves. Yeah. She's been yeah. practically there for him. She's obviously, in, in some way, she, I mean, she's she's managed she's to... She's providing. She's providing for him. She's managed yeah. to convince him that she loves him, that he loves her, to the extent that even through the most horrendous behavior that she puts him through, he still feels like he loves her and he wants to protect her. So on some level, she's managed to engender that in him, which is a miracle, frankly.
0: It also feels like uh, Mrs. Roach next door might have uh, helped with that, yeah. Because uh, they're very did. fond of each mm, other, and...
1: yeah. And I like
3: that Sam. You know, even though he he's constantly, "Hey, mom, look at me, look at me, look," you know, he's like constantly asking for her attention. Mm. He. <laughs> He kind of comes up with clever ways to, you know, he, like I said, he's very creative, and like his his magic tricks are kind of like that that outlet that he's found for himself. Of like, well, if I just do something flashy enough and mm. and spectacular and unbelievable enough, my mom's going to be so impressed. Like he's constantly trying to impress her. That's pretty obvious, but I love that it's it serves a practical function too. Like it actually ends up helping him in the end because. Mm-hmm. He's able to palm the pill, so he doesn't have to take it. At one point, There's this his little sleight of hand trick. Um, he's building all these homemade weapons, which mm. he uses to help fight the monster and his, you know, his mother. After she really goes off the deep end, oh, he
0: humbles her.
1: Yeah, he kinda of does. <laughs> mm, yeah. But oh. that's um that's a, a thing that, that kids do in normal circumstances, magical thinking. The idea oh, yeah. that they can that they can do something and it will make everything all better. Mm. Um and it's a coping mechanism. It's because they, they are becoming aware that there are scenarios in which they are potentially in danger or at the very very least things are going to go away that they don't want them to go and there is sweet fanny adams they can do about it and sometimes magical thinking is the only thing that can get you through and he does it and it saves him it saves him and it gives him a,
3: a way to express himself too which i just i don't know i like that i thought that was a cool a bit of uh a, a little bit of setup and payoff that they that they put in there like yeah, this actually ends up helping him, but it also gives him a creative outlet, and it so, helps him become a little bit more normal. Yeah, also, at least it makes him feel normal.
0: If your kid's making weapons uh, at home, that doesn't necessarily mean he's severely disturbed. I used to do it. I'm not severely no, he, disturbed.
3: He's a boy. Of course, he's going to do that stuff. I mean, I hate to stereotype, but I have a, I have nephews. I have you know, co- boy cousins, and they're they're. Oh, they're all like that.
0: <laughs> mm. I suppose if you were making balloon animals for uh, b- a bunch of uh, kids, the boys, when asked to, to, between a French poodle and a sword, would oh, they probably all want the go sword. for the swords. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I, I did notice when I uh, worked at TGI Fridays I did a lot of balloon making as soon as you give them that sword they immediately attack an adult just immediately aha I have power over you I stab you <laughs> and I just I kept saying guys be responsible with these swords I mean I know they're not actually gonna kill anyone but you know, imagine if it was really a sword do you want to kill your dad and that's why I was oh. fired from TGI Fridays
3: do you <laughs> want an answer to answer that question
0: <laughs> <laughs> no i i did say yeah no attacking people um that, that's that's you had to promise before you get your sword no attacking people they always lied and attacked people of anyway but uh, yeah it's just it's, well that's
3: a very that's a very kid thing too was to yeah. lie constantly so <laughs>
0: to lie constantly and to be needlessly aggressive Sam's, like, the the horrible, like, dart launchers and, and the, the little catapult he makes at the beginning, which seem so destructive and so, like, inappropriate in the home, as you say, uh, come in extremely useful here, just in terms of, uh, you know, as far as he's concerned, he's um, he's beating back the monster, and what, what really gets uh, to his mother in the end is when she does start throttling him, when despite all of his... You know, I don't even know how he got her bound up in the basement down in her shrine. Uh, but when she starts he to... He her. Yeah. When, when she starts <laughs> to strangle him and he just caresses her face, it reminds oh, yeah. me of Han in um, The Force Awakens, one of my favorite films of all time, when oh, he's just man, been stabbed yeah. by his son and he reacts not with hatred, not with um, even disappointment... Just with regret and sadness and love.
3: And yeah, I got to see my son one last time before the end, so. Oh. And Sam. That'll break your heart in two seconds. Great. <laughs> yeah.
0: And Sam, similarly, plants. Uh, you know, I, I, I believe that Kylo's going to be redeemed as a result of that um, reaction. Uh, I could be wrong. I'm not going to be petitioning Star Wars if they don't fulfill my fanfic. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but oh my god! <laughs> but this is enough from Sam to plant a seed that does eject the babadook and does start to push it out and externalize it. Uh, but then it it's still dangerous to him because it can't be gotten rid of, as as he says, you can't get rid of it. And uh, you know, good God knows what's actually happening during this scenario because we're kind of seeing it from her perspective. <laughs> I hate to imagine the idea of him being yanked upstairs by her as she has another terrible turn and slammed against the wall. But it could simply be a you know, him running away from her as she suddenly turns again. Mm. But it's something that can't just be gotten rid of like magic, can't just be um killed. It takes a constant battle. Mm. And also it takes, as we see later, nurturing and, and not just ultimately not just hating herself for feeling this
1: yeah and there's there's two things about this bit specifically that that strike me in terms of the uh, what happens and the fact that she starts to tell the truth and she starts to be honest and for a brief moment it makes things worse Um, it's something that happens a lot in in therapy when you start to address the issues you feel awful because this stuff's being dredged up and it it does sometimes make you wonder if it's worth it because of what you're having to go through to address this shit. Mm. Um, yeah. it, it, spoiler, it is. Um, but, <laughs> but there is that moment where it's like, well, why did I bother if it was going to make me feel so terrible? Mm. Um, and the other thing is because what she throws up when the Babadook starts to leave her is ink. Oh. It's black, yeah. It's that. It's what she hasn't been able to write down by by detaching herself from her. Uh, create her creative outlet was writing, was creating. Um, even if it was just those children's books, there was something in her that needed to come out through that. And it has been denied all this time. And at, and at this point, this ink that she's containing within her, she can't form that into any kind of coherence at this point. It just has to come out yep, somehow. To come out. And that is the initiating thing that then allows her to... Um, to get up there and defend Sam and protect him and and protect her home, her space,
3: mm-hmm. and also to see that you know, like Sam is also her creation. And at the end, she accepts that there is a bit of Oscar in him. She acknowledges it and says, "My son is very much like my husband. He speaks his mind. He always says what what he's thinking." and she's now proud of that because Mm -hmm. she realizes there's a bit of her husband that has lived on Mm -hmm. and it's in her and his creation even if he's not there anymore he still is kind of there in sam which that could be taken as a bit of a cliche but i I, in this case i think they totally make it work it definitely like they they stuck that landing for me anyway
1: yeah well i think specifically because it's something that she so desperately needs that Example that somebody is setting her of, you tell the truth. You Mm -hmm. tell the truth and shame the devil. You get it out there. And, you know, if people react badly, people react badly. It had to be said. Hmm. And she has to face the accident. She has to see what happened. She has
0: to relive it and, and, and see the worst.
1: Yeah.
0: And... She has to accept that ultimately she, her conscious self, is the one that can stand in the way of this to prevent it from harming Sam. The whole get out of my... Do you, you want to handle this bit? Because it's the bit that got to you. It's,
1: yeah, it's it's my favourite line in the whole thing. Oh, man, it's, the, it's great. You are trespassing in my house. <laughs> Ugh. You're nothing! <sighs>
0: Trespassing in my house! If you touch my son again, I'll fucking kill you! When it retreats, uh, when it collapses, and she goes and 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 touches the hat, like it, it's, I can imagine. Being in cinemas with people who don't quite get it, going, "Oh no, no, no! Don't you go over there and touch that! Don't you do it, girl!"
3: And oh man, <laughs> oh, you know what? It, uh, just, just on on that point too, I one of the things that I I also really love about this, just as far as like the type of horror film that it is, I love that there's not a single jump scare in this entire movie, mm. not a single one. I that mean, made me so
1: happy <laughs>
0: there's moments that would probably satisfy the jump scare crowd in that there's a lot of big loud screams and scary faces the, the
1: bit where it runs up the wall and across the ceiling Yeah,
3: a little bit but it's not, it's it's not, not set yeah. up it's not in the same way. way it's not no, the it's,
0: yeah. mm-hmm. everything that happens in the Blumhouse films where it's like a totally, and round and
3: clang. Yeah, we get a very long, lingering shot of somebody going up to a door, or it's starting to like turn a corner, and it's silence, 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 and then the big, loud noise and the big thing Sting. that flies in yeah. your face. Yeah, it's not, um, it's not set up in the same way, and I, I just love that they that they don't even have, you know, like you said, there some that might satisfy that, but it's it's definitely. it's it's just not the same and i am like uh i'm the biggest proponent of jump scares are not horror jump scares are not horror so the fact that they didn't really do any of that in this film is so satisfying to me um and just in general this is this is a very much like the type of horror film that i generally prefer Mm -hmm. not that i don't enjoy other Genres of horror, like I like horror comedies, I like the, you know, the Jasons and Freddys, I like slasher films, but the ones that really get to me are movies like this, that have more going, that have a psychological element or very big on atmosphere, this is definitely more in my wheelhouse
1: well the 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 fact is your own mind can't sneak up on you what it can do is convince you to walk around the house in a blindfold so that it can grab you when you're not expecting it mm. but it can't sneak up on you because you know everything that's in there if you're if mm-hmm. there's something that you're not looking at it's because you're not looking
0: at it mm. and it does scare the shit out of her when she goes to touch it and it's like oh no don't go do that um it rears up and screams at her hmm. in a terrifying way, and then it
1: Runs retreats the and yeah. retreats down it to retreats. the basement. Yeah.
0: And this was the really important thing. This was the sticking the landing. Like this was the me getting it. Like I, I, I kind of like I got what they were doing around about this point. It took me ages to really get what the Babadook was. But it's the aftermath when she's you know, playing out in the garden with him and then she goes, right, you stay out here. I'm going to go down to the basement. She's got black shoes on and the rest of her is still we- uh, wearing pink. But they're just that black, that bottom 10% being that she's living on top of it now, it's down there. She acknowledges it with the black shoes, but it's not consuming her and she's not pretending it's not yeah. there. So when she goes down... It's pitiful. It's crying. It's still frightening, and it th- it sends her rearing backwards in an episode. But she's able to calm it down rather than reacting angrily mm-hmm. and say she's able
3: okay to say it's okay.
0: Yeah, she's talking to herself. She's talking to her own pain, mm-hmm. her own damaged, pained psyche yeah. that she is comforting and f- like feeding grave worms is. I suppose, her way of getting used to the idea of death and, and, and coming back around to the idea of uh, uh, this being a natural part of life. You find worms in the garden. Mm.
1: I also have a particular take on the worms, which I don't know if this is true. I don't know if this is something that would occur to anybody else. But do, do you guys know the worm rhyme? Everybody hates me, nobody likes me, I'm going to kill on worms. Oh, yes. yeah. yeah this that's exactly what this bit made me think of basically that idea that when you feel that low sometimes what can pull you out of it is gently mocking your self-pity and it's it's just it's not aggressive it's not an abuse as long as you're saying it to yourself at this point not somebody else saying it to you is obviously horrible because they're not taking your your upset seriously But to say it to yourself, it's kind of you're gently teasing yourself just off the bottom rung, just enough to get a grip on climbing out of the pit. Mm.
3: There's also um, there's also a black rose that grows out of the little grave that they make for Bugsy, their dog. Uh, Yeah. That's that was lovely. that was a nice little touch too. It, it looks, it, or, or maybe it's like really, really dark red. But it, I think it's <laughs> it's, it's implied uh, to be black. It's yeah. implied that it's it's supposed to be like a, a death bloom, almost like well, something beautiful came out of this. But it still it still has that stain on it, mm-hmm. which is okay. It's okay, and you can admire it still. You can still say it's beautiful, but it's that lesson you have to learn to live with your demons and by the end amelia has learned how to do that
1: Mm. well even if it is dark red that's her deep dark burgundy when she's Mm -hmm. her passion blended with her her sadness
0: and um it's very significant that sam's crappy magician act is what's celebrated at the end is like you know life can be very mysterious (laughs) it can also be treacherous Mm -hmm. and like he's doing this like fun little, like, like kids doing magic stuff, um, you know, just in, in that performative way, again. But it's not, you never, if you look at his room, he doesn't have posters of, like, Ben Ten or whatever the the kids like these days, mm. like he's, he's not the kids. He's not the kids. He's very <laughs> removed from the rest of the world, and so mm. him, like he's got like Victorian arcane posters and spirituality and mm. uh, um, like rocket ships the old in there,
1: toys and, that appear to have been yeah. gathered from thrift stores. Uh, it's
0: it's you know he's an unusual kid, and she embraces that at the end and goes, okay, show me your magic stuff, and oh, that's brilliant. Mm. And the the dove thing really is a neat little trick, and he pulls it off with a flourish. Mm. Yeah. And uh, it, it just, she's able to celebrate him for the performer that he is. Clearly, her husband, Oscar, the violinist, was mm. also a performer. The yep. costume suggests that he was up on stage in a tuxedo with the hat playing the violin, mm. and that that's something that Sam has, has kept. It also suggests the fact that Sam speaks his mind, so did her husband, mm. that she mm-hmm. left her very stuffy family of, of Claire's to be with this vibrant performative artist person an artist
3: yep so that
0: she could do this with her life and then then it was snatched away from her and she's kept that repressed for seven years but now with the fact that she's embracing this about sam it's coming back in and maybe she'll start writing again and maybe you know just we don't need to know what will happen we just need to be given flashes of hope that you know, you can pave the road forwards mm. from here. And
1: the fact that Sam is still solitary, that he's, it would have felt so hollow and For so false. To him to go off
0: playing with other kids immediately.
1: Basically, yeah. If he'd had a birthday party <laughs> and all of these kids who've never spoken to him yeah. before at school suddenly came around to his birthday party and everything was happy and all
0: joyful. That odious little oik of a cousin of his yeah. comes on and goes, that, I'm yeah. sorry. No, she's a little shit. Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah. With, her, with her like, with her little thing over her nose because, like, I think like he broke her nose in two places or something yeah. they say at she one point she, in two she, places yeah yeah so when she comes with her little bandage over her nose mm. like i'm sorry sam i want to play with you and now that, no. that, so, that that would have felt so that would have felt so
0: fake apparently the uh, the actor actress playing claire um actually had to keep away from sam who's the, the actor playing sam whom she found adorable but didn't want to get close to because there would be a rapport between them and there needed to be a Coldness a and distance. a distance. Yeah. Yep. Like they've never really talked to each other or known each other. So that was, it's kind of sad for that actress because they had to establish that. And also, um, the director, to get this across to a six year old child, had to pretty much act it out for him with his mother just so that he could get it. And he was really yeah. like on board. He got it. And that is, it's a fantastic performance. He is an annoying yeah. little toe rag to begin with. But that transformation over time and the winning us back, it might not won everyone back, but for the, when you, for the people twigging, oh, it's about him trying desperately to, like, he is so up against it. He has no support and she cuts off what little he has. And he is a brave, brave boy in the face of of just the most terrifying. Because uh, we're not going to show this to Lyra for God knows how many oh, years. Oh,
2: good God, no. Because this is her yeah. nightmare.
0: That's this is sweet. her yeah. absolute nightmare for a child. <laughs> this that, is too much for a kid. Yeah. Mm. That, you know, that she's already said she doesn't really want to watch horror ever again if she can help it. And it's not like I've been showing her horrible horror films. Uh,
3: after, after what? I'm
0: out of curiosity. Well, no, um, it was... You know, she watched Stranger Things. She really liked Stranger Things. She watched oh, okay. the Tim Curry It and was bored by It. And so I said, uh, do you want to watch <laughs> That's the... understandable. Do you want to watch the uh, the new version of It? And so she watched the trailer and went, nope, room full of monsters. Oh, okay, <laughs> yep, yep. So, um... That house is pretty creepy. Yeah. To
1: be fair, I watched the trailer for It and almost thought, do I really need to see this? Yes, the, you do. The first yes, trailer yeah, was not great. <laughs>
0: Actually, yeah, it did seem a bit jump-scary. They hid a really great film behind Mm jump-scares. On the other hand, Winchester, which I called (laughs) immediately, I saw saw that Helen Mirren in a ghost story, and I went, Helen Mirren in a ghost story. And then I went and checked the uh, trailer, and within seconds... It went. It basic. It gave so me the, the lines of you know. She built this house, fifty rooms, da da da, and it was built by this woman. And then that was just the trailer before the trailer. And then the trailer started and said the same lines again. It's
2: gargantuan seven storied structure it was built on the orders of a grieving widow, Sarah Winchester. We're worried about her sanity.
0: Yeah, it's important to note that that scary face jump scare actually turns up again later in this trailer, so it's less scary?
2: It's gargantuan seven-storied structure with no apparent rhyme or reason. Each maze of halls more confusing than the next. It's under never-ending construction. It is built on the orders of a grieving widow. Sarah Winchester is the majority shareholder of the Winchester Repeating Arms Company. You want to take it away from her? We're worried about her sanity, Dr. Price. Do you believe in ghosts, Doctor?
0: Inspired by actual events. Not actual events. I do not believe in anything I cannot see or study. At the most haunted house in history. (laughs) Scary Face! 500, rooms. Ghosts. Souls. Spirits. Entities. Apparitions. Shadows. Jump scares. Devils. Altergeists. Wraiths. Spectres.
1: I can feel it.
0: Oh god, he's moved a mirror across. Oh no, no. Didn't see a thing there. In the air. In the Oh, world, he's moved a mirror across. Oh, it's still nothing. Would it? We've not seen before. Well you There's better not move that mirror a third time, cause Oh the god, this is Yeah, unlike Cinema Sins, I watched that trailer over and over again before I made my assessments, and uh, yeah, it's the worst trailer ever. Winchester, 14% on Rotten Tomatoes. I could have done so much of a better horror movie with Helen Mirren. In fact, Helen, if you're listening, I've got one in mind. Just give me a call. And oh, look, The Babadook, 98% freshness on Rotten Tomatoes. Now, they're not 100% foolproof, but they're often a good indicator of how well film critics like films. Fourteen percent should set off alarm bells. Ninety-eight percent worthy of a closer look. It, it starts off with sort of like, "Oh, you got to do this thing because this woman's crazy," and "Oh, she's not crazy." It's you know, da, 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 da. and you don't believe in ghosts, do you? Long pause, walk over to a doorway, peek through, and then, boom, a ghost scary yes. face turns up. And yeah. Goes, oh, oh, my God, a ghost face in a ghost <laughs> film? Never <laughs> have I seen house. such a thing. And I love what you did with that sting. I mean, that thing with the sound you did.
1: Said no one ever. I said ever. this to Sharon
0: the other day. That currency should be like yen by now. That there, you could get so many stings to the actual scare <laughs> that you know that, that its currency should be totally devalued. It has currently it's weighed in at nine percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and, and if you go, you go to the at, top critics, it's at zero oh, percent. The
3: Winchester is just Winchester,
0: mean? yeah. Nine percent okay, okay. of fifty-one reviews. Ouch. And they, the, the, the top one basically said it's really, really formulaic. It's just a really crappy jump-scare ghost yeah, story. Yeah, like just us. a like,
3: standard, what you would expect as, yeah. If
0: you have Helen Mirren, you owe it to Helen Mirren to make a great ghost story. This is, it's, it is <sighs> beyond terrible the Terrible waste
1: of Helen Mirren. Just remake The Woman in Black and make her The Woman in Black, if you're that desperate to put Helen Mirren no, in a ghost
0: story. Woman in Black 3... Helen Mirren goes to the Woman in Black, and she's an exorcist. Oh, nice! And it's Woman in Black versus Woman in White, and Helen Mirren's in White, Ooh. and she's like, "I am gonna get you out of this fucking house." And then better movie
1: but, Woman in Black, no, no,
0: no, no, back
1: in Black. Wait,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Helen Mirren's on the ropes. She just can't handle it. This Woman in Black's chasing her around with a whole bunch of like dead children, and it's like, "I need a better, <laughs> I need a better childminder than this." There's a knock on the door. And it's Nanny McPhee and it's Nanny off <laughs> right there. Nanny McPhee versus Woman in Black with Helen and Mirren in the middle going get her. And at the end, Mary Poppins turns up to take them all to heaven, except for Helen Mirren wow. who goes right. That's the end of that chapter. <laughs> now this Amityville you speak of. <laughs> That's a way better film already than whatever Winchester could uh, be. I,
3: I would watch it. Okay. I'd watch that too.
0: Two I'd... more things. <laughs> <laughs> Two Pre-order more things. My ticket. Another potentially better film than this is a remake or possibly a sequel or maybe even a spin off to The Babadook. If you really do want The Fabulous Babadook, but directed by Taika Waititi. So it's the Babadook, but he's living with a family, and they've all accepted him, and it's like, uh, yeah, we're just sort of uh, hanging out with the Babadook. uh, Just sort of, you know, sat in the living room, the Babadook sticking out a mile. We don't like to introduce him to guests. He's a a little bit... (laughs) He's a little bit aggressive, but uh, he's also... Hop hop the remote, he's a little bit rude, but... uh, getting used yeah,
3: to it it's basically <laughs> I've
0: just taken what we do in the show with mean, pizza as the Babadook yeah um, but I'd be fine with that and the other thing I'd be is fine with
3: that too and I, oh, we, you know what else you know what else yeah. I like about Babadook that uh, you know a lot of uh, recent horror films seem to feel the need to do there's no obvious sequel hook at oh, the yeah, end no they're okay to just kind of leave it as it is and yeah. just let it be its own thing and I'm totally fine with that too.
0: To do a sequel, it has to be them outside having fun, and then it slowly cuts back to the basement, and the window's a little bit open, and a little bit of black cloud starts emanating out of the window, and it's like, oh, the Babadook's gonna get you, and it's like, no, that that shits all over the whole point of the film. If you do that, mm-hmm. no, nah. I'd I'd so much rather see Jennifer Kent making more films, yeah, as just many continue as making
3: making more. Has she was this her first film? Do we know if this was her? Uh, directorial debut Um, uh,
0: if you actually watch the blu-ray there's a a short called monster on there it's 10 minutes long it's basically the babadook in 10 minutes Mm. what they did with this film is flesh that out and give it real dimension that makes
3: that makes perfect sense because that's a that's a usually a a prerequisite to a lot of first-time directors getting their debut as they Mm. do a short first that gets noticed by a production company or someone that is like, here's, here's more money, make a bigger version of this.
0: And, uh, hang on. Kent has met ex- with Warner brothers executives in late 2014 to talk about possibly directing the wonder woman film, a job, which eventually went to Patty Jenkins. I think we've got good things ahead for her. Uh, I think, you know, even if she just carries on doing, um, like little personal projects that they're, they're going to be of supreme interest. Um, her current project at the moment is... Uh, she uh, In June 2015, it was reported that uh, Alice plus Freda Forever is being adapted into a film which Kent will write and direct. Uh, it tells the real-life story of Alice Mitchell and her lover Freda Ward, uh, oh dear, whom she killed in 1892. It's, in, it's set in Memphis. Another film, The Nightingale, deals with Australian history while another is a surreal drama about death and letting go. Also set in Australia. She's getting kind of typecast in, like... Uh, you know, films about grief and death and, and it would appear murder as well.
1: Yeah, grief in Australia.
0: But, uh, yeah, she's uh, she's very passionate and um, talented, clearly, and uh, mm. I, I suspect will go far. Um, and that the final thing I'll say is that I really, really hope Amelia got herself to replace that shit TV she's been watching. Just a box set of Frasier. Because if you're going to watch a sitcom, a sitcom where every week they talk, you know, about in some way, like after all the jokes, there's a little thing about relieving pain and um, and confronting, you know, unpleasant truths. You know, Mm -hmm. Frasier helped me get quite observant over time. Uh, regarding people's mental states. It's helped Lyra to be very compassionate as well. It's by no means the best sitcom, and there's some dated shit in there, but it's the the fact that every week there's, like, characters are acting out in one way, and then they will eventually get to the root cause of why they're acting like that. It's It's a really nice way of, like, when you see somebody acting up, thinking to yourself why are they doing this is there a way i can kind of like help them ease back yeah
1: and it i mean it's done in fairly primary colors it's yeah. it's not um it's not the most subtle uh, or even in some cases the most accurate portrayal of um of psychological motivations mm. but the fact that it, it sort of has keep an eye out for this stuff as yeah. a central message it
0: gets you to question mm. behaviors yeah. and, and at least uh go go out of your way to understand them a little better and also it was misinterpreted by a lot of people as being a very snobby show like your dad said that you know it's very much up itself it's it does nothing but poke fun at Niles and Frasia for being as snobby as they are. Um, and, and most of the time, Martin's the one who's right. Side note, when we recorded this, John Mahoney had just days left to live, and I already miss him like crazy. He was kind of a better dad to me throughout my 20s than my actual dad that's the kind of show that I would suggest Amelia watch a little bit more of instead of all that telly
3: or at least get a subscription to Netflix. Come on. There's, there's good stuff on there.
0: Yeah. Although, you know, they also do tend to thrust quite a lot of horror in there and there's there's some retrograde stuff, but there's also really good stuff, including the Babadook
3: including the Babadook. Yeah. Um, I know at least in the U S the Babadook is still on Netflix. That's how I watched it. So it's definitely on there. Um, a lot of their original programming is great, so mm. come on, Amelia.
0: Absolutely. BoJack. Just watch BoJack. Yeah, Jesus. Stream
3: some BoJack. Oh, man, that would be right up her alley.
0: Yeah. Get, get Frasier out of the way first, then some BoJack. It might, BoJack might be a little bit heavy if you're coming out of what she's you know, on her way through and past. Mm. To finish off, we have an article that Sharon wrote for foxspirit.co.uk.
1: Shadows of the Mind, Women in Horror Who Fight Back. Contains spoilers for the films The Descent, The Babadook and It. I've been experiencing a lot of I can't do this over the last couple of weeks and counterintuitive though it may sound, watching horror movies is sometimes the only thing that can cut through the treacle that my brain becomes when I'm experiencing a depressive episode. Why counterintuitive, you ponder? Well, I'm glad you asked. Horror has something of a poor rep when it comes to the portrayal of women, particularly, and for a significant portion of the genre, this is well deserved. It's not unique in this, the traditional action movie with its male power fantasy framework is frequently guilty of having women characters who are thin on the ground at best, and thin full stop when they do turn up. Their agency is often lacking, and far too often their presence is mainly in order to take the role of prize, to be awarded when Johnny Template achieves his goal at the end of the film. While I am no stranger to the practice of empathising and identifying with someone who is of a different gender, sexuality or culture, I think it's a great habit that everyone should get into as early as possible, it can be a bit isolating when you can't find characters who look and feel like you that behave in ways that are meaningful, reassuring and strengthening. It can be even more isolating when the society you're trying to fit into expects a certain type of behaviour that doesn't match yours and there are a few examples to tell them different. And I do mean few examples, not none. The action story plays with anger, giving guidance on how we can push back against frustration, and it can be a power fantasy for women as much as for men. The early Alien and Terminator movies and Mad Max Fury Road are some of my absolute favourites. But I don't think frustration tells enough of the story, and it's fascinating to me how those examples all contain strong elements of horror, not just playing with anger, but with fear. Horror is, or should be, what we experience when we witness the subjugation of someone who is already physically weaker and more vulnerable. Repetitive, boring or downright bad horror does nothing to challenge the status quo. Women start out as vulnerable and end up dead or driven insane. Slasher flicks and torture movies that just replicate this pattern are the worst because they reinforce it and numb the audience to true horror, eliciting the freeze response so they end up laughing instead. There's no fighting this reaction, its intent is to keep you still long enough that the predator doesn't see you, and all you can do is wait for it to pass. If the message is can't win, don't try, then the story is worse than useless. If, however, the characters are framed as victims initially, but are able to come back from the brink, even when the process is flawed or incomplete, this has great lessons when we ourselves feel trapped by fear. The Descent is, for the most part, a story about a group of women who face their challenge with planning determination and an innate drive to fight no matter what. It does end on the consequences of the freeze response, but like The Little Match Girl, where the protagonist succumbs to cold and exhaustion even as she holds the key to her salvation in her hands, reads to me as a cautionary tale against it. The Babadook shows a complex fear of emotional responses, and how the refusal to process or even acknowledge them can manifest as deadly threat. Amelia's monster is a complicated creation of dismissed trauma, unaddressed grief, repressed self-doubt and shame. Eventually it threatens her son, and while he is able to stand up to her, Sam is too small and frightened to tackle the demon. She is the one who must hold her ground against the Babadook. Amelia models a core of self that still remains under all the terror, that stubbornly refuses to let the monster have full sway over her house, her child or her mind. The moment that breaks me and gives me wings every time is the expression on her face when she plants her feet and roars at her antagonist, you are trespassing in my house. By distinguishing throughout the film between his mother and the Babadook, when Sam yells at it to go away, it's always slightly to the side of Amelia. He gives her the key to its eventual defeat, and us a clue as to how we can tackle our own unwelcome reactions. By personifying them slightly outside of ourselves, we may enable a detached confrontation which gives us half a chance of success. Amelia also provides the massive revelation that accepting the presence of such a huge and hideous beast in our basement, while we may not be able to outright destroy it, or even want to, if it is bundled up with the loss of things we loved and have no desire to forget, is a form of resilience. If we give it regular attention, nurture if necessary, and make sure our loved ones, at least the ones who cannot protect themselves, are kept safely away from it, then we need not fear that it will once again grow huge and stalk unopposed through our house. It presents a take on the impotence of existential fear in the face of someone who has known a different kind of immediate, life-threatening fear. While trauma can cause manifold problems of its own, the necessary steps to heal it have the potential to inoculate and protect in times of crisis. While Bev is damseled slightly by her capture and role as motivation for the boys to reunite and take on Pennywise, a specific choice for the film adaptation, there is something powerful in his inability to kill her, and particularly in his frustration that he cannot even make her afraid of him. She has been targeted by the monster through symbols representing her own body, hair, and blood, which are initially terrifying, but she is able to reconcile with them in part because of the support she receives from her friends. They acknowledge the gore in the bathroom that her father cannot see. They help her to clean it up, and as a result she knows they are stronger together than they will ever be apart. And it is Bev who feeds this back to them at their moment of separation, even recognising that this is exactly what Pennywise wants. This is what gives fire to the inner voice that commands her to strike at the clown twice and at her father when he finally turns on her openly. In the book it is hinted that it is behind Mr Marsh's obscene and violent behaviour but for me the strength here is that he is not. Bev has already experienced a child's greatest terror that of the parent who not only fails to protect you but is themselves a threat to your very life. She has faced and fought this emotional betrayal and the void that lies behind Pennywise no longer holds any fear for her let alone the hypodontial clown. Fear can easily be the dominant emotion for a woman. It's not overwhelming for all of us, and obviously it can affect those who aren't women just as much, what with it utilising those pesky brain chemicals we all share in some measure. But socially, statistically, women, including anyone whose gender wasn't designated correctly at birth, experience more vulnerability than men. We are soaked in it throughout our lives. We are often expected to suck it up and get on with life despite it. The Me Too movement and how widespread it is makes that clear. Behind each one of these stories is guilt, shame and trauma, all of which are rooted in fear. And this is why I think a horror movie, a good horror movie, can serve as a great power fantasy for girls and women. When they're done right, they're like a gut-wrenching fairy tale. And while the stay inside the circle story serves its purpose for young children, sooner or later this must give way to how to fight the beasts outside the circle. We cannot stay sheltered forever. If some form of trauma hasn't already taken away that safe cushion of dependence, life will eventually. We need guidance on how to handle it when it happens, and how to recover from it afterwards. And if we find the right stories, we will have exactly that.
0: The production of School of Movies is funded by Patreon. Make no mistake about it, you guys are the ones who keep us going. And our special $15 sponsors get name checked each week, so a huge extra thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Sarah Montgomery, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicol, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, and Lorraine Chisholm. We will be back next week with a trilogy of Godzilla films. The original black-and-white Japanese 1954 Gojira, the 1998 Roland Emmerich Godzilla, and the 2014 Gareth Edwards Godzilla. And we will see you for those three very different films in seven days' time. Oh, and in case you were wondering what this amazing music by Bear McCreary is, it's from 10 Cloverfield Lane, one of the best thrillers of our age. If you haven't seen it, see it. The following is a very short clip from episode two of Let Them Go. It was the same with the locomotive of the train they had travelled down to Cornwall on. Amanda had confided in him that each one of these was in fact an iron prison housing a dragon, whose steaming nose and puffing breath he could clearly see and hear. He decided that dragons ate an inordinate amount of coal, hence their lunch had to be carried along behind them, and the clever human engineers had worked out how to make the beasts pull many travellers in exchange for their vast meals. So Timothy knew dragons existed. He knew his train was pulled by one and he knew to steer his family along the station platform and into the final carriage, to keep as far away from that fiery prisoner as possible. He knew it with that certainty that only exists in children. Let Them Go, a 15-part cinematic horror story, now unfolding on the New Century Multiverse podcast. Okay, so that was The Babadoo. And
1: we actually managed to keep it to about an hour and a half. We did, yay! Oh my god, we never do that. No, we never we go, keep to time. Try and keep
0: it to an hour and a half. Three, <laughs> three hours, hours later. later. <laughs> oh, <laughs> thank so, you so much, Mike. Maya. Where, where, can folks see, where can folks see your stuff uh, right about now?
3: All right. Well, obviously, there's the BoJack Horseman uh, episodes of, of School of Movies that we did uh, a while back. So, uh, if you know, if you go back into that catalog, I'm on those. Um, I have appeared on a couple of the Cane and Rinse podcasts. Um, I did a show with them about Undertale that came out um, last year. So sometime around March, 2017 is when that was released. I was also on one of their episodes of Sound of Play um, a couple of years ago. And I will be, just a li- And this is not spoiling anything because their schedule is out now. Um, I will be joining them later this year for their discussion of Final Fantasy VI, which is my favorite game of all time, and I am so, so excited for that. <laughs> um, as far as other media, um, there's a little movie called Venom coming out. In, eh, not too long that I think I can talk about. There's another pretty big uh marvel property that i'm not allowed to talk about but uh, i'll yeah um <laughs> yeah ah that,
0: w- you're that killing was a- me,
3: okay oh also i will be on an episode of the fox show the resident um in a couple of weeks time so i can actually say that i played a doctor on tv that's nice. actually true now <laughs>
0: Fantastic. Okay, so yeah. um, I'm going to be—I mean, I'll, I'll be watching and reviewing Venom anyway. So uh, I'll—you I'll, I'll, have to tell me where to where to look for you. Mm. Okay, right. Thank you so so much, Maya, and um, hey. thank you guys for sticking with us. This was heavy stuff, and it has been a heavy early first part of the year this this year. With uh, we need to talk about Anakin, Hellblade, and this. I don't think we've got anything else quite this heavy planned for the next few months. So you guys might be off the hook. But, uh, but you never know we'll, We might come back with something that just knocks you for six um, And possibly even a film Which you didn't expect to be this uh, You know, that, that to have that kind of depth But um, we hope That we have been able to Give you new perspective On The Babadook uh, So that when you watch it the next time You're like, oh, that makes sense Okay So, uh, we will be back next week I've been Alex Shaw
1: I've been Sharon Shaw
0: And School's Out